Please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes 9. Evan, there's a little bit of a reverb up here for me, if you mind. Thank you. Well, let's pray as we uh, look to God and His Word. Father, we want to thank You. Thank You for Your Word and the promises as we just sung about. We can stand on these truths to the very end because we know that this will stand when everything else in our world falls apart. When, when everyone else's word becomes a lie, we know Your Word remains true. And we can stand on the truth no matter what. And we know that this life is not all there is. We don't have to manipulate people to get our way. We don't have to lie or coerce to get what we want. We can speak the truth. We can live the truth. We can hold to the truth. Because we know the truth will set us free. We know the truth will last forever. May we be people of the truth, Lord. May others... Know this about us, that we will tell them the truth. They can trust that what we say is right. God, help us to represent you well. We ask you to help us to understand your word and live in light of it as we journey toward home. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. One night several years ago, a man in Slim Cornette's church was showing Slim around the county airport in rural Mississippi. This switch lights up the runway, he said as he flipped the switch on. And then let's say there's a plane in distress out there somewhere. I would throw this switch and turn the searchlights on. And as he turned them on, the night sky lit up. And all of a sudden, a small plane materialized out of the darkness and landed on the runway that had now been lit up. Slim and his friend watched in amazement as a young Franklin Graham, son of the famous evangelist, stepped off the airplane. The pilot had been flying Franklin back to school in Texas when the electrical system in the plane shut down, leaving them stranded in the Mississippi night sky without lights or radio or any means of guidance. From out of nowhere, the search beam had come on and guided them to the landing strip. As Franklin's mother Ruth tells the story, earlier that evening before they left home, Billy Graham had prayed the father to protect and guide his son and the pilot. 
Was this a coincidence or was it providence? Did this happen by chance or happenstance or was it the intentional work of a providential God? Well, over the past couple of chapters here in Ecclesiastes, chapters uh, 7 and 8, we see Solomon, the preacher, shifting his perspective from the first five, six chapters where he was basically giving example after example of example of the meaninglessness of life under the sun. <clears throat> How all of this in the end is nothing but vanity. If this is all there is, if there's nothing beyond this life, then when it's all said and done, what good is it? And then he makes a shift in chapter 7 to start saying, there is more. And let me give you some counsel in light of what we see living under the sun. How do we live as those who know there's more to it? And in chapter 7 he talked about, in contrast to wisdom under the sun, that sees all that there is is just this stuff. In contrast, there's this above the sun wisdom that has a better perspective that realizes that oftentimes sorrow is better than laughter because in sorrow we actually contemplate real things and what's really going on. Rebuke is better than empty flattery. Patience is better than hastiness and what's going on in the present is better than what we would think about as the good old days, right? The past. We see that this above-the-sun wisdom is also has a bigger plan. And when we understand there is a bigger plan that is going on, we can operate in this world much better, much easier. Then we come to chapter 8, which we talked about last week. As he continues and talks about walking in this wisdom here as we walk this life under the sun. And there were three major truths that we acknowledged there. First of all, we said that wisdom, this kind of wisdom that acknowledges God and the things that go on beyond this life, acknowledges that life here under the sun is out of our control. Right? We're really not in control. We might think we have some control over some things, and there may be little things that we can decide about, but really life is out of our control. And the sooner we admit our limitations, the better off we are as we trust the Lord. Wisdom acknowledges that life under the sun is filled with injustice. And we just, I read earlier in the service how much injustice is going on in our world, just among our brothers and sisters. It's filled with injustice. We live in a fallen world. That's fallen people. And we also said last time that wisdom acknowledges that life under the sun is beyond our comprehension. We don't understand it fully. We cannot fully grasp what God is up to. We can speculate. We can come up with some sense because of we know what God has revealed in His Word. We know God is in control. We know God is up to something. God is working a plan. We just don't always know the details. We can't always find it all out and understand everything. And then he concludes chapter 8 into verse 1 of chapter 9, which is a kind of a transitional verse. And he says, I've taken all this 
to my heart. And explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. And so wisdom acknowledges the providential hand of God. Well, that transitions us to today. This morning as we look at chapter 9. And we see this providential hand of God at work. And in chapter 9, we see how God's hand makes provision for us. But before we read that, you might be saying, what does that mean, providence? What is providential hand of God talk about? Well, John Piper explains providence this way in his book, A Sweet and Bitter Providence. He says, life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next, and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, a switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is really for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so the providence of God is not just that God's sovereign in control. It's that God is working through these things, orchestrating events and purposes and plans through our lives. And even the hard things, the tough things, the things that we would never choose for ourselves, God is orchestrating all of this to bring about a plan that is for our good and for the glory of His name. That's what we mean by the providential hand of God. And we can trust that hand no matter what we are walking through in the moment. No matter how, how dark it may seem, because when it's dark, we can't always see clearly. We can trust. God knows what He's doing and God is at work. And so, let me read Ecclesiastes 9. Again, verse 1, I've taken all this right, to my heart and I explain it that righteous men, wise men, and all their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all, not just the wise and the righteous. Everyone, right? There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer or the one who takes an oath is, so is the one who is afraid to swear or take an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. And there's one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there's hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die. But the dead do not know anything. Nor have, any, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished. And they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. 
Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which she has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, verily do it with all of your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warrior. And neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared in an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also, I came to see his wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege, work, siege works against it. It was founded in a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner can destroy or destroys much good. I believe Solomon is helping us understand, again, the hand of God at work in our lives. And there are three areas in which God's hand, God's providence provides. And the first in the first six verses is that God's hand provides hope. You see that in verse 4, there is hope. Well, whoever is joined with all their living, there is hope. And there are three truths that he, he brings out in these verses that about life that in these things, we need hope, right? And the first is that we don't know what we will experience. That's what, he, when verse 1, when he says, man doesn't know whether it will be good, love, or hate, uh, hatred, anything awaits him. Basically saying, we know we're in the hand of God, but we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what we will experience. We don't know what's going to happen. There's a level of uncertainty in our lives. Anything awaits us. The future circumstances are out of our control, as we talked about last week. We don't have control of these things. And so we may walk with God, and we might do everything God has called us to do in His Word, and we're still not guaranteed that life will be easy or things will go the way we want. And many of us know by experience that reality in the Expositor's Commentary, the author says, The righteous and the wise attempt to act according to the plan of God as far as they can determine it. That's what we try to do. But they have to accept both the good and the bad. Some things, of course, can and should be changed. Others must be taken as they are and made stepping stones to higher things. The vital thing is to realize that there is a purpose beyond happiness and sorrow. In fact, you cannot use good and bad events as a criteria to decide whether God loves you or hates you. Your future may be a mixture of two. When trouble comes, 
It's easy to ask, what did I do to, to, to deserve this? It's less easy to ask the same question when happiness comes. <laughs> and so we accept from the hand of God the good, the bad, and the ugly because we trust Him. And our hope is that God is in control and He is working out His plan through all of these things that we experience, whatever they may be. That doesn't mean we, we don't feel what's going on, right? We don't grieve when things go wrong, or we don't get excited when things go well. Or we don't determine that God loves us or hates us based on what we experience. We trust the hand of God because we have this hope, that God is working a plan and a purpose beyond these things. Because we know this is not all there is. When we believe or, or, or live as if this is all there is, then one thing that goes off the rails will ruin our lives. And how many people are living in this way? Man, they're so excited when things are going well, but when when one thing goes wrong, man, they're, they're down in the dumps because they don't have that perspective or they've lost perspective. There's more going on here than meets the eye. And so we have hope because we trust in the providential hand of God because we don't know. Right? We're, the things that we go on in this life are out of our control. Secondly, we don't know when we will die talks about this one fate for the righteous and the wicked, the good and the unclean, right? The clean and the unclean, the man who sacrifices, the one who doesn't sacrifice, the good man, the sinner. Everybody's fate is the same. And what is he talking about? He's not talking about eternity. He's talking about under the sun thinking, and that is that we're all going to die, physically going to die. And that's what he says in verse 3, there is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and that is that there is one fate for all men. It doesn't matter how you live your life. Everyone is going to die. That's a bummer. Right? We don't know when that day is coming, but God does. It's not a mystery to God, but it is an evil, he says in verse 3. Why is it an evil? Death is an evil because death is the consequence of sin. We were not originally created to die. That's a consequence of sin, and it's evil. But also, again, from the human perspective, it's an evil because it doesn't seem fair that the same fate for everyone, right? The person who lives a righteous life. And as we looked at last week, that person might die prematurely when the person who lives a reprobate life might live a full entire life in this world. That doesn't make sense. Death is no respecter of persons. So Solomon is processing this, again, under the sun. He's saying it doesn't make sense. The hearts of the sons of men are filled with evil. And he says, and there's insanity in their hearts. This uncertainty about the fact that we don't know when that inevitable day will come leads some people to literal insanity. <laughs> 
And what do we mean by insanity? Not of sound mind. Foolishness. Now, you don't have to have a PhD to know that we live in a world of insanity. All right? Utter foolishness all around us. And one way in which we demonstrate that foolishness is the fact that we spend an inordinate amount of time, energy, and resources to try and avoid the inevitable. And this is one of the main points of Matthew McCullough's book, Remember Death, is we as a society spend so much time, energy, on, on all kinds of health and, and everything to try to avoid death. It's common for all of us. Interesting statistic in, in his book. He said that in the United States, Medicare devotes one quarter of its spending, 25% of all of Medicare, Medicare, to 5% of patients who are in the final year of their life. And most of that money goes to care in the last couple months, and it's not, it's of very little benefit. Now, what he's not saying is that we shouldn't try to bring comfort to somebody in their last moments. But he's simply making the point that we as a society spend so much of our resources hoping that we can extend this thing and it's inevitably coming. Again, I don't think any of us are opposed to medicine and all those things. It's just that we need to realize that it's coming. It's coming. Right? We don't know when we will die, but thirdly, we do know that we will die. Scripture tells us, right? Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. 100% of us will die. That mortality rate has never changed. It's always 100%. And only when we come to grips with our own mortality will we then be able to embrace the gospel. Because Jesus came not to make our lives better in this life. He didn't come to see that you live a long and prosperous life under the sun. He came to deliver you from the final enemy, which is death itself. He conquered death for you and me. He took our sin on Himself, experienced the consequences that we deserve for sin, the wrath of a holy God, and He went to the grave on our behalf. And then He conquered death and hell and sin on our behalf. He rose again victorious. And He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And our trust is in Him. And therefore, we can face death with hope. And know that this day will come for all of us. And we don't have to fear it, but we can live in light of it. And that will help us to live the way God intended us to live. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, writes this. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. 
It does not mean that we are to leave this present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. It seems a strange rule, but something like it can be seen at work in other matters. He says, health is a great blessing. But the moment you make health one of your main direct object, uh, main direct objects, you start becoming a crank and imagining something's wrong with you all the time. You are only likely to get health provided that you want other things more, like the proper proper food, right? <clears throat> Exercise, work, fun, things like this, getting out in the air. In the same way, we shall never save civilization as long as civilization is our main object. We must learn to want something else even more. As followers of Christ, our main objective, our main objective is not to see America turn around again. Our main objective is to see America turn to Christ. And whatever God has to do to bring that about, we should be for it. That doesn't mean that we don't do our part as citizens of a country. We love the country we live in. And we should respect this country and we should respect the laws we talked about last week. We live under the authority God has established in our life. And we do our part. But that's not our main goal. Our main goal is to glorify God and to see people turn to Christ. And if in the process of that, we can make this place a better place to live, glory be to God. That's what people in our history have done. They made this a better place because they were looking to Christ, and they were looking to see people come to Christ. And imagine the world we would live in if people lived the way Christ intended us to live, if people had a relationship with God and truly loved one another the way we are called to love, we would have a wonderful place to live until we get the glory. <coughs> Our main goal is not to have a wonderful place to live. Our main goal is to see people come to Christ and grow up in Christ and reproduce themselves, reproduce Christ through discipleship. And so we live with eternity in view. David Gibson talks about dying well in his book, Living Life Backwards. <clears throat> I'm going to read a few paragraphs from him. He says, I'm part of a younger generation that, as far as I can tell, has no conception of what it means to die well. Dying well doesn't mean that when death touches your family, you do not have a broken heart. It doesn't mean that you do not experience suffocating grief. To die well means that you realize death is the limit God has placed on creatures who want to be gods. And that includes me, he says, because if you ask my wife, <coughs> I'm pretty keen on the idea of being the center of the universe. <laughs> Aren't we all? 
To die well, he says, means I realize death is not simply something that happens to me. It happens to me because I'm a sinner. I realize that in a sense, I cause my own death. To die well means I realize that every time I see a coffin, it preaches to me that the world is broken and fallen and under the curse of death. And I'm a part of that. It means I realize that I'm not owed three score years and ten by God. It is only because of His mercy that I am not consumed to death. To die well means realizing that from the day that I was born, I lived under the sentence of death. And I'm amazed that God spared me as long as He did. It means that I have been heading for a death for the moment, from the moment I was born. It means I have been laying up treasures in heaven, and that is where my heart is. To die well means everything I have in this world I hold with open hands because I love Jesus more than anything and anyone else, and I'm happy to go home to Him. When confronted with death up close, everyone realizes that we all come to this. But if that is the first time it confronts us, then it will likely be utterly crushing. Realizing that we all come to this before we come to it is very different from realizing it only when it's staring you in the face. The sooner we come to grips with this, the more we'll be able to face it when it happens to a loved one or when we are facing it ourselves. He says, but preparing to die and to die well does not mean drawing the curtains and dressing in black and thinking morbid thoughts. Preparing to die means thinking about how to live. How can I live my life with death in sight, knowing that I don't have forever in this life, but I want to make the most of it. I want to make a difference. Not just so that when I leave this place, my name carries on and people can say, what a great guy that person was. No, but so that I can make a difference here for eternity. So we live with hope because we know God is about something bigger than this world. And even in the face of death, we have hope. Secondly, then, verses 7 through 9, 7 through 10, <coughs> excuse me, God's hand provides enjoyment. God's hand provides enjoyment. He says, go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. That pretty much answers the question, right? Do we wear white after Labor Day? Well, it says you can wear white all the time, right? And let not your oil be lacking on your head. Now, what is this talking about? I like what Ray, Ray Pritchard said. He said, have a blast while you last. Right? Life is not a dress rehearsal, so put your heart and soul into it the first time. Living by faith means that you live until you die, and you don't die until you're dead. Right? And so this, we eat, and we drink, and we go about every day these things. So we ought to find joy in the routines of life. We eat every day, right? multiple times a day. I find joy in that. That's part of day, the routine. That's part of sustaining your life. Instead of looking at it negatively, take joy in it. Now, he's not saying be a glutton. But remember, Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Probably not because he didn't enjoy food. 
probably because he did enjoy it. He enjoyed it and enjoyed mealtime with his disciples, with other people. We enjoy, we find joy in the routines of life. And he said, this white clothes and anointing your head with oil are symbols of joy. As opposed to sackcloth and ashes. Right? Put on sackcloth when you, are, when you are mourning or when you're repenting. You throw ashes over your head as a sign of grieving, of, of, of uh, repentance. But he, instead he says, no, put on bright colors, right? Whites and, and things that represent joy. Put oil on your head. Find joy in the routines of life. As you're going about life. I remember back in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, the, the wise man who knows the interpretation of a matter wise, a man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. It changes from being gloomy to being happy. You go through life with joy. There's something compelling about a joyful person to an unbeliever who finds little joy in circumstances. And they wonder, well, how do you have so much joy? Because I know something you don't know. I know somebody you don't know. I know there isn't, this isn't all there is. There's joy in the routines of life. Secondly, find joy in the relationships of life. He says, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of this fleeting life which has been given you under the sun. This is your reward in life. And your toil in which you have labored under the sun. We should find joy in our relationships. If you're married, cultivate the relationship with your spouse so that you can enjoy the gift of that relationship. Now, the Bible is written primarily from a male perspective. So we see oftentimes it, it's spoken this way. Enjoy the wife of your youth, of, of, of your, uh, all the days of your life. But it could very easily say enjoy the husband. Proverbs tells us, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord. And you find a wife, finds a good thing, and obtains favor from the Lord. Understand that. An excellent wife is a crown on her husband. But she who shames him is as rottenness to his bones. This is what the Scriptures say. And so, enjoy your relationship with your spouse if you're married. Have fun together. But also, beyond even your, your, your uh, marriage relationship, relationships, good relationships in this life are a blessing from God. Enjoy those relationships. Cultivate good friendships. What God intends for you to be relational. That's part of how we were made in the image of God, that we have relationships with people. We can encourage each other. We can have fun together, laughing together, enjoying it. So find joy in your relationships. And find joy, thirdly, in the activities of life. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it verily with all of your might. There's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, that is the place of death, where you are going. Find joy in the activities of life. Whatever you do, do it all your might. Do it with gusto. Right? Put your heart and soul into it and have fun with it. We tend to view work as a negative thing. 
Sometimes we even say, well, work's a, a consequence of the fall. Well, no, work is not a consequence of the fall. The consequence of the fall is that the ground would be cursed and it would be hard to cultivate. Work was given to Adam before the fall. That's something good from God. Because work allows us to exercise the image of God through our creativity in what we do. Whether it's our job, right, we get paid for, or any other kind of work we do. We can put creativity into it. Productivity. Being able to provide for our family and others as God blesses us beyond our needs and our family's needs. We can be a blessing to others by the things that we produce, by the work that we do. It's part of living out the image of God. It's a beautiful thing. It's intended by God. It gives us a sense of accomplishment. Have you ever worked on something? It may not even be your job, but something you do at home. You work on something, and then you finish it, and you can step back and look at it and say, I did that. You find joy in it. Whether it's a you know, a piece of art or, or, or something else that you do, a project you do at home. You can step back and you can see what you accomplished. And there's something that God has put inside of us as part of the image of God to be creative as God is creative, to produce as God produces. In fact, we're told in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10, 11, even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. It's not good. It's not good when you don't have something productive to do. Because then you will find something destructive to do. Something that will feed your self-centered nature and probably destroy other people or, or destroy something to get what you want. And so it's good to work. And it's good to require other people to work. It's not good to pr promote laziness. You know, so many times these things become political things in our society. They're not really political things. They're biblical things that have become politicized. Whether it's abortion, whether it's Handing money out to people for no good reason and letting them be lazy. These are not political things, first and foremost. They're biblical things. And we as God's people should stand for biblical things. But God has given us these things and provided all this stuff for our enjoyment as we're moving toward glory. And then lastly, his hand provides hope, it provides enjoyment, but it also provides perspective. As we know the providential hand of God is at work, it provides for us perspective. And in verses 11 through the end of the chapter, he gives a couple uh, important truths here. He says, listen, I saw under the sun that the race is not always to the swift, the battle is not always to the warrior, Neither is bread to the wise, wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. For time and chance, and that word chance there is not a, doesn't mean what we usually use. It simply means unanticipated 
circumstances, things that, are, that we didn't expect from our perspective to happen. But God knows. He says, all this, you can work really hard, prepare really well, and it's still not work out the way that you desire it to. Often it does. It doesn't mean we shouldn't work hard. It doesn't mean that we should not do everything that's in our power. But we should trust the results to God. Because our efforts do not always yield the results we desire. Right? The race is not always to the swift. The best team doesn't always win. Which was proven last week when the Steelers played the Eagles. Because Steelers didn't win. So... But it doesn't mean we shouldn't work hard. We shouldn't try our best. We shouldn't put our best effort, right? And then trust God with the results. And then the second truth is that our efforts do not always yield the recognition we deserve. He's on to say about this, this uh, small city in verse 14. The small city with few men. And a great king came and, and built siege works around it. And they were going to conquer this city. Well, how did the city conquer? Through the wisdom of a poor wise man. And yet, that poor wise man was not remembered for his wisdom. And was not looked to later. It says that wisdom of the poor man in verse 16 was despised. His words were not. So, they, he, through his wisdom, rescued the city from this great king. And yet, the people didn't come back and say, man, you did a great job. We, we want to honor you. And then they didn't come to him again and say, hey, what wisdom do you have now? They just kind of, oh, yeah, just a poor person. They don't need you. And the fact of the matter is, sometimes this happens. Right? We don't get the recognition that we deserve for something we've done. Right? We get passed over for a promotion at work that we should have gotten in somebody else who, who we consider to be not as qualified or maybe lazy or, or, or whatever, they get, or because maybe the boss knows their family and so they, he elevates or she elevates them instead of you when you work hard. These things happen. We don't always get the recognition that our work, our effort deserves. But listen to this. Nothing goes unnoticed by God. Nothing you and I ever do goes unnoticed by God. And God's providential hand is at work. I love the story of, of Esther for that reason. Right? Here's Haman getting elevated by the king, and, and, and he's just, he's thinking he's all that. And then some. And he gets so emboldened by the, the favor that the king has placed on him that he, he builds these gallows for Haman because he just can't stand the fact that Haman, as a Jew, will not bow to him and show him proper respect. And it just so happens, right, of course, by coincidence, not, that he walks into the king's palace the night, the morning after the king couldn't sleep, and so the king has his, his uh, scribe read him the accounts of the kingdom to put him to sleep, and he just so happens to open the book of the, 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 the history and read about how how uh, Mordecai saved the king's life. And the king says, has anything been done to honor Mordecai? And he says, no. And then Haman walks in, 
with the purpose of asking the king permission to, to, to hang Mordecai. And he says, hey man, come on in here. I got a question for you. What is it that I should do as a king for a man that I want to honor. And of course, Haman, being self-focused, says, well, he must be wanting to honor me because I'm the most important person in the world. This is what I would do. I would have him put the royal robe on him and take him through town and all these things and, and show honor. And he says, excellent. You do that for Mordecai. You've got to be kidding me. What an incredible story of the providential hand of God. And then a little later, he comes out, and Haman's intention was to kill Mordecai, and so the king has Mordecai, has Haman hung on the gallows that he had prepared. It's just a beautiful, beautiful story of the providence of God. And so no matter what's going on right now, no matter who gets the the honor for whatever, it, it doesn't matter because God knows and God's at work. And God may actually be setting a person up because he wants to use that promotion to show them they can't handle it. And maybe through that, God will humble them and bring them to Christ. Let me ask you, would you, would you rather be passed over for a promotion so that somebody else through what God does in that, can come to Christ. Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with not getting the, the, the recognition you deserve or, or things not happen the way you desire because you worked hard but didn't get it? Would you, would you be okay with that if God used that to bring somebody to himself? I hope so. So we trust the providential hand of God that he knows what he's doing. His hand provides hope. His hand provides enjoyment. His hand provides perspective. Because we are in the providential hand of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for perspective. We thank you that no matter what goes on, no matter how we feel about it, We can rest in the knowledge that we are in the hand of God. And in the end, it's going to be, it's going to be good. Lord, help us to have patience, to wait upon your hand to move and open things up. God, we have a hard time being patient. We confess to you. Lord, we want things now. We want things to work out the way we desire. We want things to work out the way we deserve. We, we just are that kind of people. But God, help us to have perspective. Help us that when things don't go our way, that we stop before we let our emotions tell us something that isn't true and get us all worked up. Help us to pause and remember, you know what you're doing. This thing that is going on that doesn't make sense, that doesn't seem right, is all part of the plan of God. And we can sit and wait on the work of God. God, grow us up in these things. We haven't arrived yet, but we're on our way.
And God, would you use us as we're growing up to help other people on the journey grow up, help people who don't know you yet come to know you. Help us keep in mind that there is a day coming when we will be caught up in the air with the Lord and we will receive what's our due for the life that we live. I want to thank you that we're covered by the blood of Jesus and we don't get what we deserve. But you do grant us reward for faithfulness. Help us to live with eternity in view. We ask it in your name. Amen.